Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 11, verses 45 through 52. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers because they killed them, and you build their tombs. And therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes. I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, and you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Father, my prayer is that this morning, I not be guilty of hiding the key of knowledge from your people. Help me unfold, restate what is here in this holy text to the salvation the healing, the sanctifying, and the growing of us, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning in our text, Jesus has harsh words and grave warnings for people like me. Professional teachers, pastors, professors in the church. He is saying, Woe to you who in religion teach legalism. Who who say that the way to get God's favor is to take His holy law of grace and of faith that was always meant to be responded to as a child or as a patient to a doctor, as a doctor's prescription. Yes, that's my healing. And you say, no, it's a job description. Do it! And earn God's favor. Woe to you, he says, who take the prophets and the apostles and you give an outward showing of teaching what they have said. But by your twisting and your legalism and your man-made world views, you actually take away from the people 
the key of true knowledge of God. You blind them to the truth, even though the book is in front of you all. That's what he's going to say this morning. Now, three weeks ago, when we were in this text, remember now the context. Jesus was invited to have dinner at a Pharisee's house and all his buddies. And Jesus said, you got it. And he went on purpose in order to not ceremonially wash up before dinner. So he'll provoke them so that he would blast their damnable legalism. Man-praising doctrines that destroy the souls of people. I said in the last sermon that the nastiest, the most deceptive, and the most destructive sin in the history of the church is legalism. Now, just a little review. Legalism is not equal to obedience to God. Oh, we're under grace does not mean that we're free to disobey God. Legalism at its core is a heart that attempts to work for God and thus get His approval of you. You did that? I see that distinction in you as opposed to your neighbor. Aha! Here's some good stuff. See, legalism is religious activity that does not spring from a heart of trust in God. Who He is. Who He said He will be to you. It doesn't trust His commandments in His promises. But it says, I will take those and turn them into something they were never meant to be. A job description that I will perform and you will see. And thus, you will pay me grace. Now the last time at this dinner party Jesus is at, He has already leveled Three woes. The woe doesn't mean, whoa, cool. It means really bad things for you. Judgment's coming. He leveled three woes at these religious people because their heart was so far from God. He, he had said to them, woe to you. Yes, externally, for instance, you obey the Bible with this tithing, but your heart doesn't Match it. Your heart has no faith in God. No love for God. And thus, no care for other people. And then he went on to say, you're like tombs that are unmarked. And we saw last time, what that meant is people get contaminated because dead bodies are there. And he was using it as an analogy. And he said, you religious people, in fact... And you contaminate the whole religious community with your legalism. Okay, he's leveled those three walls. I think it's pretty intense at this dinner party at this point. The tension's thick. You can feel it. 
And just your standard Pharisees were not the only people there. Some of their clergy were there. Professional teachers were there. Trained Bible interpreters and oral tradition interpreters were there. And now, you talk about walking into gunfire. Verse 45. Then, one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Here's my interpretation. Jesus, you just blasted all the Pharisees in general. Why don't you smack us around a little bit? It seems to be what they're saying. Who are these lawyers? Just take a couple minutes here. Let me give you an illustration. How does it fit in first century Judaism? Let's just take the Southern Baptist denomination for a moment. I think there's at least a few million Southern Baptists in this country. Okay, what, what are they? They have particular doctrinal b- beliefs and they belong to a particular segment or denomination. Okay, there are a few million of them, just your standard Southern Baptist Christian people. Okay, now the vast majority of those are not seminary trained professional teachers, pastors, professors, but some of them are both, and they're Southern Baptists. That's the same thing that's going on here. The vast majority of your Pharisees are your regular Jewish person who jump through a lot of hoops to become part of a particular sect within Judaism that is very observant, much more observant than your standard non-Pharisaic Jew of oral traditions and ceremonial and cultural Jewish things. That's your standard. Now, vast majority of them are not professional teachers, but some of them were. That's who the lawyers are. Other denominations, like the Sadducees, the more liberal, they also had their lawyers or scribes, etc., who were the professionals. Now, in the New Testament, the term here, lawyer, or the term scribe, or the term experts in the law, those aren't different offices. It's all referring to just different terms to the same persons. In verse 46, Jesus says here, Woe to you lawyers. Now, that term in the Greek is, Woe to you namikos. The Greek word for law is namas. Okay? Namikos, a law-er. You deal with the law. That's why the NIV translates that word, experts, in the law. To get the point is what's being said is these are the professional interpreters of law, of Moses and of the oral traditions. Namikos. Now, in the New Testament, there's another term. Nama didaskalos. Namas, law, didaskalos, teacher. Teachers of the law. Refers to the same thing as the namikos, the lawyers, just a different term. 
A third term is grammatus. You can hear the word grammar, dealing with words. That's the Greek word that's normally translated scribe. Not something different than lawyer. Exact same person. Three different terms. If you look down at verse 53 for a moment, Jesus, in this context, will go on to say, not, I mean, Luke will say, as he went away from there, the scribes, the grammatus, we use nomikos, he used lawyers, scribes, same people, left and got all men. Now, briefly, let me quote from Zondervan, uh, Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible. Okay, who are these scribes, lawyers, uh, experts in the law? Since every detail of Jewish life was expected to be regulated by the law, and since it was impossible for an ordinary Jew to become familiar with the multitude of legal requirements and to apply them in the new situations of daily life, it was absolutely necessary for some men to devote themselves to a study of the law. Those who did were the lawyers, experts, scribes. Among the leading duties of the lawyers were the following, to study, interpret, and expound the law, to teach the law in the schools and in the synagogues, to decide questions of law to act as judges as in the various Sanhedrins, religious courts throughout the country. Okay, so here they are. You offend us too, Jesus, because Jesus has just leveled three woes in general to, the, to, the, to, to all the Pharisees, saying your outward religiosity, yeah, your religiosity is there. Inwardly, zero love. And no care for others. And now, the next three woes we see in the text are aimed right at the teachers and how they abused the Bible and were perverting the Word of God. Verse 46. And Jesus responded, Really bad stuff coming to you. You lawyers. Because you load people with burdens hard to bear. See, these teachers of the Pharisees were not saying, here's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Here you go, just read them, and let's just do them, let's do them. That's not the issue. The issue is, they loaded on top of the Bible all kinds of made-up laws in order to try to build protective fences around ever transgressing Moses, at least in their mind. See, not only was there in their teaching, in the teaching of the Pharisees, not only was it their approach that was legalistic and wrong, even if you didn't have any extracurricular laws of the Bible, they approached the Bible itself totally wrong, as if it were a job description. 
And I've done something. I feel good about myself. God is really happy with me now. Ooh, not so happy. I did bad. Ooh, really happy with me again. They totally misappropriated the law. Okay. But not only was that the problem, they had added over 6,000 additional laws, regulations, in their so-called interpreting the law of Moses. For example... In the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment says, quote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. That's it. Okay, from that, what's going on in the first century are these oral traditions that are memorized and have been passed down now through generations. And that one commandment had 39 separate categories on how to obey that commandment of the Sabbath. And each category had tons of minute, specific directives on how to go about obeying that one commandment. One commentator writes, just to give you a taste of it, one of the 39 categories forbade the carrying of burdens on the Sabbath and hedged it with minute prohibitions for every occasion. This section declared that anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig... It's got to be dried. It's lighter. Okay. But if it's heavier than a dried fig, uh, it was a burden. So it was permissible to carry something that weighed less than a dried fig on the Sabbath. But if one inadvertently put it down and then picked it up, he would be counted as doubling the weight and thus breaking the Sabbath. Now, in the first century, all these Pharisaic laws, not biblical laws, added laws, were oral, not written. After the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and then going into the second century is when the Jews started to codify all these oral traditions. Okay? Now, and we call that segment the Mishnah. So let me quote from the Mishnah, which is looking back, and this is the kind of teaching these teachers were teaching. On the Sabbath, quote, if a man carries a burden in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or on his shoulder, he's guilty. Breaking the Sabbath. Don't do that on the Sabbath. Now, because this last was the manner of carrying of the sons of Kohath. But on the other hand, if he took it out on the back, not the front, the back of his hand or with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal, then he's not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, since he has not taken out it out after the fashion of them that take out a burden. And 
dust break the crown don't work on the Sabbath. So what's going on is not only that, there's this air that they're teaching, and then, see, it doesn't just affect the Pharisees, it affects Peter and James and John, all these people who go to synagogue. You understand, you've got your super spiritual Pharisees and a lot of people who aren't that, and they look down on them, but these are the teachers, uh, and they give this air of, oh look, that's, I understand why you might, you know, break Moses' law right there in Exodus, but when you break the laws like I just read there, then you're really guilty because Moses is kind of obscure. We have clarified everything for you. The religious life in first century Judaism had become horribly oppressive because of these religious leaders. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, because you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So these teachers, these so-called experts in the Bible, in the law, in the oral traditions, could not care less about the actual persons they were teaching. That's what Jesus implied. If you did... You would have mingled with them. You would have cared. You would have thought about the horrific burdens you were putting on these people. But instead, they found great satisfaction in looking down at those people. For they don't keep them like we think we do. This is why Jesus is so harsh. See, it's not only that about lifting a finger to help them. These guys knew all the tricks on how to not make it so burdensome on themselves. For instance, and I quote, On the Sabbath, the lawyers had determined that you could only travel 1,000 yards from your home. What's that, about three-fourths of a mile or so? That's all you, in other words, if you travel more, you've broken the Sabbath because you worked. But if you travel within that, it's not work. It just came about. But, you want to go further? Okay. But if a rope was tied across the end of the street from your house, <laughs> then the end of the street became your residence also, and you can go a thousand yards from there. Or, if before the Sabbath a man left at any given point enough food for two meals then that point technically became his residence. And he can go a thousand yards beyond that. Okay. Or, on the Sabbath, see, you could not tie a knot. That's work. No work on the Sabbath. No tying a knot. But a woman, yes, it was allowed for her to tie a knot in her girdle. So if you needed to draw water out of a well, you can't do it with a rope. So, but you can grab a woman's girdle and tie a knot to a bucket of the girdle and get your water. They knew the tricks. Legalism, at its core, weighs people down with unbiblical and peripheral issues and rules. 
And I, I just look in here and some of us in here have been in past churches that were inundated with legalism that obscures the Word of God and the Gospel of grace. I mean, I was told of, of one instance at a former church of one of you where the oral tradition, as far as I know, it wasn't written. It was an oral tradition in that church or that denomination that men don't grow facial hair. Okay. Then there's a guy who comes to Christ. He's in the church. And some guys have a real bad problem if they shave with breaking out. And, but this guy, nope, you cannot become a member unless you shave. So he couldn't become a member. Or a girl comes to Christ, finds Jesus, and then pretty much immediately was told, okay, now... Don't come back with those earrings in your ears and you can't wear pants anymore because that is what good Christian girls do. And we can go on and on. What's the answer to the problem? The answer to the problem is not let us live according to the flesh. Let us live according to our sinful nature. Hey, we're under grace. That means we don't have to obey God when He says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is the fulfillment of law. We don't have to do that. That's not the answer, biblically. I think the answer, at least at this point, there may be a lot more, but I want to say it twofold. The answer is to know the difference between the Bible and everything else. To know the difference between the Bible and tradition or your particular Christian cultures, know the difference. And then the second half of that is know the Gospel. Know that Christ Jesus in His life and in His sacrificial substitutionary death where the wrath of God for sinners like me was poured out. Did it all. And God proved it by raising Him from the dead. But, but everyone's not saved. And so here's... No, when you hear that, have you come to Him? Has it ever seemed sweet to you? And that, That's true. At that very moment, you were made right with God forever. It's knowing the gospel. See, then you learn what happened to you. This is, this is the part of it. You learn, oh, that's who Christians are. How did I see it? How did I come alive? Because God in the gospel, like a wind blowing, changed your heart. He empowered you with the very presence of Himself in the Holy Spirit. You're in Christ. And that empowerment has changed our disposition toward the God who commands. And so we follow Him. This is why 1 John 5.3 Bob and I don't coordinate this. Sometimes, and I like that many times. But here it goes. He quoted it this morning. 
For this is the love of God. What does it mean to love God? And the Apostle John says that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome, baloney. Do not tell a sinner that God's commandments are not burdensome. They are. But he's saying, if that sinner has been born again, there is a truth to his commandments, biblical commandments, that are not burdensome. Oh, there's tension. There's still sin. But there's something different. That even when it does sin, and you will, grieves and hates it. And you know the experience of having the person of the Holy Spirit awaken. Yes! That's why I don't do and live that way anymore. And it's not burdensome. There's this taste of it being a deep joy. The answer to legalism, even in the church, and I think people in evangelicalism struggle with this, because they have really been beaten down by horrific leadership and legalistic additions to the truth and obscuring of the gospel, and then they just get confused of when do I obey God and not. Know the difference between Bible and cultural expressions of it. And know, as John said, His commandments are not burdensome because a Christian lives by faith and they respond with a heart of trust in God. And that's the, let me say the word, the battle of our life against our indwelling sin. This first woe Jesus gives to the professional teachers of the law is an ongoing warning throughout church history. Beware teachers of teaching people in such a way that places traditions and cultural expressions of Christianity on the same level with Scripture. And beware of teaching in such a way that butchers the gospel of grace and promotes a working for God in order to earn acceptance. This happens in evangelicalism all the time. Particularly when there's a new guru. We always like gurus, right? New guru with a new system supposedly based on Scripture to teach you how to have your best life right now. It's legalism. Or to teach you how to create your own reality with the confession of your mouth. It's a system. And it's legalism. Or to teach you how to earn more money and more material things by you reaching deep into your pocket and playing God's system and giving more. It is legalism. Or pop psychology filtered through all scriptural 
text, or the self-esteem movement, and we can go on and on. The bottom line is this. All of those kinds of things slowly are separating people from the Word of God itself. Jesus says, Come to me, empty-handed. There are no merit badges given out in Christianity. Ever. But what about rewards? You will get them based upon His grace that worked in you. And you will know you never merited it. See, this is what Jesus is getting at when He said in first century Judaism to His fellow Jews, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. You're going to do some things here. You got it. I got a yoke for you. Take my yoke upon you. And learn. You're going to learn. Listen. Learn from me. Because I, Jesus, am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Why, Jesus? Because my yoke is easy and my burden. Put something on your back there. But it's light. See, Jesus is saying that in first century Judaism to a bunch of fellow Israelites who were oppressed with the religion all around them. Burdened down. Those whom Jesus calls to Himself, they're given a burden. But it's light. Because it's the burden of, I'm free. Here's His burden. The Gospel's true. I am absolutely forgiven of every sin. When judgment day comes, I won't stand alone, but God's Eternal Son who became man and died for me and suffered what I deserved. He paid it all. And that His perfect human life lived is attributed to me. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Oh, and it's, okay, it's, that's, that, 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 that is peace. And then, see, why... Why is it not burdensome? Same thing that he taught his Apostle John, whom we just heard from. Because he does the miracle of new birth. The Holy Spirit came in and made you alive together with Christ. And that means he gave you new taste buds. For when Jesus puts that yoke. No, 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 no. Here's the burden. I've saved you. I've justified you. This is Christianity. And Jesus has now come. Follow me. That's the burden. 
But is it a burden? Not if he's regenerated you. Come. Follow me. Oh, he didn't just say that to Christians. He has empowered the Christians to obey that. Follow me. Jesus, his emotions, his words are always perfect. His anger is a perfect anger. Because there is no human being, there is no soul that was ever meant to bear the stupid, myriad additions of the Pharisees or of many of us church people down through the centuries. Jesus then launches into his second woe beginning at verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers because they killed them and you build their tombs. And therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Let's just stop there for a moment. What in the world is he saying? What's his point? Jesus' point here is, yes, you teachers who do not actually submit your hearts to the words of the prophets, you outwardly build these monuments and tombs to them as if you're honoring them. As if you're honoring their word, the Scripture. But you're not. Jesus is saying that the same deadness of heart to the words of the prophets that was in your ancestors that caused them to kill some of them is the same deadness of you lawyers. They outwardly were honoring the Word of God written. But Jesus' point is, you've so butchered it, and your heart doesn't submit to it. That's what He's saying. He's not saying, you, as you guys build statues or tombs to these dead prophets from centuries before you dance around and, and say, yay, 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 man, I'm so happy that our ancestors killed them. No, they're saying, we like those guys that got killed. Jesus knows that. It's irony that He is speaking to them. You guys say you honor the prophets, yet you reject the very one that they spoke about. And you reject His apostles. And therefore, the tombs in your religiosity that you are building to them are actually memorials to your own guilt, to your own rejection of the prophets. And ultimately, to your agreement with your ancestors who put them to death. 
Then he goes on. Let me just reach back to verse 49 and continue. And therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus draws this conclusion and using this term, the wisdom of God said... He's not quoting a particular scripture there. I think what Jesus is doing is summarizing the wisdom of God, or the will of God, as it has unfolded and is unfolding in redemptive history. In other words, He's saying to these guys, your current response to God's chosen one Himself. Your current response to God's messengers will be in these coming weeks and months just like your ancestors. Murder and persecution. That's where Luke's telling us. And in Luke, book 2, called the Acts of the Apostles, that's where Luke will go on to detail this Jewish response to Peter James, kill him, to John, to Stephen, to the church as a whole, to finally to Paul. And Jesus is saying to their face right here that the consequences of their rejection and the rejection of his sent ones, the apostles, is just the end of this long line of rejecting all the Hebrew prophets. And the consequence is judgment. So that, it's purpose. God had wisdom in working this out, Jesus says to them, and had no problem just saying God's wisdom has said it. It's going to be this way. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, the first one to die because of his faith in God and angered his brother who hated God, died. To the blood of Zechariah, the last prophet to die in the Hebrew canonical, what we call Old Testament, where Second Chronicles is the last book and Zechariah dies. From beginning to end, all of that blood against God's people will be charged against you. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, people debate, what does he mean by that? I do think it's twofold. I don't think Jesus ever had... The idea that there's a final judgment is so embedded in everything in the Bible and where Jesus is coming from. But I do think because he, he, he says so clearly, this generation, first century Judaism. 
I think what Jesus also is saying as God's judgment, not just in the end time, which will come individually to each soul, but he means corporately judgment is coming 40 years from now. When Rome through Titus destroys Jerusalem and then in the second century eventually destroys the temple. Now, but here's the whole flow of it. The essential function of the prophets. You guys build monuments or tombs to the prophets. So what's the point? The representative of God. They're God's mouthpiece. They are speaking the word of God. The essential function of the prophets was to deliver God's word. And Jesus essentially is accusing them of killing the word. Jesus is prophesying to these guys at this dinner party that their actions in the very near future will prove that they are just like their ancestors when they kill the Messiah and kill and persecute His sent ones. That's why Jesus emphasized this generation. This was the most privileged generation in the history of Israel. They had the entirety of God's prophets written. He sent them the greatest prophet ever in John the Baptist. And now standing before them was the Word of God Himself personified in true humanity preaching the Word of God. And He will send His sent ones, apostles, to them. The pinnacle, the essence, the point of all existence was standing before them in first century Judaism. At this dinner party. And they will murder Him. And Peter will stand up and say, This Jesus whom you crucified is the promised One. And God proved it by raising Him from the dead of which we are all eyewitnesses. And then when Jesus' generation rejects this truth and this message as a whole, they demonstrated that they were right in line with their forebears who killed the prophets. That's what he's saying. And thus they were even more guilty than their ancestors because they had rejected the word preached by much greater than they. And so Jesus brings down the third woe in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers. For, why? Or because you have taken away. This is the whole point of the whole thing. They're connected. 
Everything we heard, it just filters right through his main point here. Woe to you! Because you have taken away the key of knowledge. And you did not enter yourselves. And you hindered those you're teaching from entering. Entering. This is kingdom language. They, they're not entering. Their heart is not changed. They have no true love for God or true repentance. And they're still the professional teachers. And thus, affecting negatively the ability of others to enter. Jesus says to them, you guys were in the position to deliver the Word of God. To exposit the Scripture. To allow God's Word written in the Bible to flow through you to the people. But instead, what you were doing and all your teaching was ripping out of their hands the very key of knowledge that they need. You killed the prophets. You killed the Word. The key of knowledge here, it is just the bare power of the Word of God. Written. It's clear. It's, it's just the Word of God. Let it speak. It is that in this context, stripped away all those other regulations and confusions and twisted legalism of it, when you strip that away, that's the bare Word of God. But that's what they were hiding through all their religiosity and legalism. The key of knowledge is the personal knowledge of the living God. Intimate knowledge that comes through the words of the book. Jesus prayed it this way. And this is eternal life. That they, those You gave Me, Father, may know You. Not merely about You, but they may know You. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The key is the Word that brings people into actually knowing God and growing in that relationship with Him. And this woe is leveled particularly at the clergy. Those who are in pastoral office. It is a warning to keep the Word in Scripture, that is the key of knowledge, keep it clear before the people. People like me are under a serious vow to preach the Word. And not just preach about the Word. We must be like Paul who said in Colossians 1.25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God 
that was given to me for you in order to make the Word of God fully known. See, if you've been a Christian long enough, you probably know the experience of being in church, hearing a passage of Scripture read that was to be preached on, and it's read, and then waiting for that passage to be unfolded in its context. It's called expositional preaching, and you waited and waited. And then the service finally ended. Never to have the preacher return, really, to the meaning in the text. To the application that should flow from the text. To the power of that very text. I remember in my first five, six years as a Christian, so many sermons that no matter what Bible passage would they started from, all said the same thing. The same pet central doctrine that they would read into every text. Other sermons, they do stick around the words of the passage. They even quote the passage numbers of times, but in the end never really deal with the intended meaning of that text in its context for the people to see. And you think, how in the world do you preach that text without making note of the clarity of what Paul or Jesus just said when they said this. Oh, look at that word. Because of this. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's a logical connection. And it just never comes out. Preaching is not exposition. Preaching is not giving the people the key of knowledge if it views the text through all kinds of presuppositional agendas or lenses, so to speak. I'm, I'm just really, you know, into the thera- therapy and I should really be a psychologist but I find myself to be a pastor, so... I have a lens here through which I see in the way I minister to people. Or a social justice lens. Or you have a word of faith theology lens. Or a Republican Party lens. Or marriage is everything. Just read marriage in every text for the people because it's so important. And it is. Or child-rearing lens. And you can go on and on. I I remember, you can do this with all the stuff I agree with too. I I remember a friend who was very excited. He was going to preach in a church. 
And I said, what are you going to preach on? I'm going to preach on unconditional election. Okay. I was in full agreement with the understanding of the Bible's teaching on election with him. I said, what text? He said, what's your text? And he told me, and I looked at it, I thought, please don't preach that to the people. That's a true biblical doctrine. But it's not in that text. Don't do that. Even if you say true stuff, but you constantly try to get them from places it doesn't say in Scripture, you are teaching people how not to read the Bible correctly. And you're stealing from them. Ultimately, the key of knowledge. Here's how the Apostle Paul reflects the problem of hiding the key of knowledge from the people in the Christian church. 2 Corinthians 4, he writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But Paul, come on. Some people might not like that and believe if you're just so clear and basic. And even if our gospel is veiled to them, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. And so Paul, by the Holy Spirit, commands Pastor Timothy and by implication all those pastors down the line, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God is one approved. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. Now, as I close, one final thing. There is with this an implicit warning for every Christian. And that is this. See to it that you do not take the key of knowledge of hearing good expository preaching or the open Bible on your lap at home. See to it that you don't take the key of knowledge away from yourself. Because you already know what you need to know. You already have, this is what we're all susceptible to, our pet ideas and doctrines what we're interested in. We can't actually hear objectively a text. It can be good stuff. You're interested in one thing right now. Marriage. That's how you read the Bible. Not a good thing. You're interested in one thing. Racial tension. And that's how you read the Bible. You know, there are theologies called black theology. Okay. Or feminist theology. These are the lenses. It's not how you read the Bible. How I read the Bible? Eschatology is everything. 
in the front page of the newspaper and how it relates to my eschatology. We can go on and on. Why? Because in doing that, here's the danger of taking from yourself the key of knowledge. You may be unwittingly ignoring what's really important for your soul right there in the text. And to prove that, that's exactly what Jesus said in verse 42 at this dinner party. Remember? These things you ought to have done. Yeah, you got that part of the Bible. Good. Without neglecting the others. They had a closed ear to so much about how to love your neighbor. How to love God. Jesus is saying to all of us, give primary importance to our hearts being exposed to the Word of God from the pulpit and in our daily lives. The key of knowledge is not merely hearing, but it's being moved and affected by that Word and responding to it. Let's pray. Lord, Your grace is so good because what we hear and see in Your words, Jesus, at this dinner party are heard by us only, ultimately, because of Your grace that we see them not only with our mind's eye, but with the work of your Spirit saying, see what you see there? It's true. And I'm working it in you. And so that work, Father, I leave into your hands and would you, to the glory of Jesus, continue to work a hunger for the Word of God, a humility before it a repentance before in each and every one of our lives to the glory of your eternal Son, the only Savior, Jesus Christ.